for the week of October 11th, 2020. This is Star Wars TV Talk, where we dive deep into every Star Wars TV and Disney Plus streaming series, as well as all the latest news coming out of Lucasfilm. With Mandalorian Season 2 just a few weeks away, we decided to prepare by discussing Disney Gallery The Mandalorian. And to help me cover this is John. John, what did you think about this first episode? Uh, I think it was a lot of fun. Uh, a show like this, I, I, I think it's worth digging into the production because I think it gives you a lot more appreciation for what you're watching on screen when you realize kind of how much love and craft went into it. So it's nice to get acquainted to uh, all of the sort of the the top level creatives, you know, the, the, the roster of directors that they brought in for the first season um, by getting to know them a little bit and seeing kind of how they approached each of their episodes. It just, yeah, it makes it more fun to rewatch it. And it, it just gives you more confidence in the show and the kind of talent they're rounding up. So uh, it was, it was comforting and it was engaging and fun to hear their insights. So yeah, this, this gallery, uh, all the episodes, there wasn't one that was a misfire that I, I eat this kind of stuff up. And uh, this was a nice way to kick it off, getting to know our directors. Yeah, and I thought that it was super interesting that, of course, they're comparing themselves to the quote unquote uh, dirty <laughs> dozen or yeah. magnificent seven type of crew because they are so unique in their own ways. And we're going to dive into the, the different directors and what they contributed to the show right. and how really different and unique they are. But it's like throughout this whole thing, even though they are so different and they bring in these different tones and different aspects of of life in general and of this space opera type of television show but it still feels like it's the same show and it still feels like mm -hmm. star wars and so that was my biggest takeaway was just how i mean it reminded me how different some of these episodes were i mean we go from this kind of dark gloomy really seeing the the beat up armor of the mandalorian finding right. this child then to this heist on the episode where they're breaking this guy out of this space prison where it's like, that's <laughs> right. so different, but it feels so natural and feels so much like something that, that this Mandalorian would be caught up into. Yeah. Most shows do this like most prestige TV. Uh, they map out the directors and they try to find directors that are going to uh, really resonate with the subject matter of a particular episode. And so we kind of see that with Deborah Chow's episode. Those are the ones that are kind of action heavy and choreography heavy. Um, the ones that have sort of like an emotional or romantic context or uh, just a more female bent. You've got Bryce Dallas Howard in on them. So you can see that they were intentionally trying to find directors that would really be able to just draw on their personal kind of like worldview and their, their personal sensibility to infuse a little bit of that into the episodes. And I think it does make it richer. I think that they, they really did pair people with good material so that, you know, that there's a synergy there. Uh, so that was also neat to see how each one uh, was kind of the right fit uh, for each of the different episodes. Cause like you said, Mandalorian, it runs the gamut. We have this sort of sleepy, uncharted backwater opening, you know, like there's just nothing going on in this corner of the galaxy except for scoundrels hanging out. And mid-season, we're dealing with ATSTs. And by the end, we've got a rehabilitated droid sacrificing himself in lava. It's like, you know, uh, you need a lot of different creative personalities to be able to really do justice to all of that kind of material. 
And this episode of Disney Gallery is so rich. I mean, we have a task to try to narrow this down Mm, into 30 minutes. But let's go ahead and get started with the man, the myth, the legend, Dave Filoni, who, I mean, I always knew he worked with Nickelodeon, but him kind of talking (laughs) about how he got into the Clone Wars and just working with Nickelodeon, thinking it was all a prank that someone was calling him, pranking him because there was no such thing as, quote unquote, Lucas animation. Right. So. I mean, what stood out to you most about Filoni's story about how he got involved in Star Wars and how his whole life has changed because of it? So we should probably just say right off the bat that for this podcast episode, we're talking about the first three episodes of Gallery. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the directors in the first one. Then they kind of talk about the legacy of Star Wars and how everyone approaches Star Wars in the second one. And then we get into our cast in the third one. So we're probably going to bounce around a little bit because... Honestly, Dave Filoni is heavily featured in all three of these episodes. Like there's a, a whole lot of insights that he offers on a variety of topics. So I'm just going to kind of, you know, broad brush it a little bit. But uh, my feeling on Filoni, first off, you know, he does tell some fun stories like when they reached out to have him come and meet with George Lucas to see if he could get involved. Uh, it's a great story because he he just so didn't think that he was the guy until he realized, hey, wait a minute, I'm the guy. Um so that that was a fun story, uh, and it it, it shows a, a humility and a, a willingness to sort of take Star Wars on George Lucas's terms. Like there, there's a lot of people that when they get involved with a property like this, they kind of want to make it their own, and they kind of want to put their stamp on it, and they want to reinvent it, or reimagine it, or reboot it, or whatever it is. They want to they want to somehow fix it. <laughs> and the nice thing about Dave Filoni is you never get the sense that he's out to fix anything. He uh, he's a disciple of George Lucas in many ways. And in the second episode legacy, he really speaks to that where he lays out in probably the most succinct terms you're ever going to hear really what the emotional and thematic underpinning of the prequel trilogy is. And th- that goes over so many people's heads. And it's one of the reasons why they're heavily criticized is because it- it's hard to really discern the foundation that George Lucas was attempting to lay in those prequel movies that ends up paying off in the original trilogy. It's, it's a very hard connection to make, but he gets it. He, he made it and he, he lays it out and you can see all the other directors um, just sort of in awe, you know, of, of how sort of deep his understanding and his connection and his uh, love of the, those thematic uh, aspects of star Wars go. Uh, So, Bottom line, Dave Filoni is definitely the right guy to be involved as sort of a uh, a creative eye to sort of shepherd these kind of Star Wars projects. Like this is uh, Favreau's baby. You know, he's the one that crafted the story and the characters. But you need someone like Filoni to make sure that it's true to Star Wars. And I, I just love that they got someone over there at Lucasfilm that can do that. Absolutely. And one of the biggest things here is. In the first and second episode, Filoni calls back to a lot of inspiration from George Lucas himself, which I think is something that uh, some of the more unruly fans of Star Wars have really criticized. And Filoni kind of brings it back and says, my whole goal is to create Star Wars in a way that he would have created Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And so even though, I mean, you had the stuff like he wanted to focus on midichlorians and if he would have been uh, directing a sequel series or what what have you. Filoni really took that to the next step 
And it was cool throughout these episodes where you see Lucas in the background and both Favreau and Filoni are kind of like after every take, they're looking over at Lucas yep. like, was that good? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, and I kind of feel for Lucas because I'm sure he's there thinking like, I'm just here to, you know, watch the show unfold. And then people are just continuing to look at him. Sure. And so that's one of the things to where whenever they made that announcement that Filoni was going to be more involved in live action projects, it's like, this is why it's stuff like this that he did and that he prepared for. That is why Lucasfilm gave him the green light to do more. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He is a real asset to Lucasfilm. And uh, I'm I'm glad to see that uh, he's not just there sort of in name only, you know, like someone that's maybe just watching, watching the episodes as they come out and just offering notes or something from, you know, his office back in San Francisco or whatever. Like, no, he's deeply ingrained in the production. And that was really cool to see. Because there's actually a fun little moment, I think, right near the beginning of uh, the first episode of Gallery, where Filoni and Favreau are hanging out on set somewhere. And Filoni starts talking about some some moment in Empire Strikes Back. Oh, it's the, the moment where uh, the Ugnaughts blast 3PO. Mm -hmm. And it goes right over Favreau's head. And Favreau's like, no, too deep a cut for me. Yeah. So like, even though <laughs> Favreau gets... Star Wars too, right? Like he, he's a fan and, and he understands it. He doesn't have, you know, he, he hasn't like studied it at that fundamental level that Filoni has. So you still need, you need the nerd, right? You need the guy that can really dig deep on the lore and stuff. Uh, so what a, what a great sidekick for Favreau to help elevate his game as well and make sure that there's some authenticity and some depth to what he wants to do with the story. So match made in heaven, you know, best thing going on in Star Wars, those two right now. And speaking of deep cuts, I mean, you have Filoni. He goes so deep into everything. And I think that it's uh, it was very intentional for him to bring up the influence of that duel between Maul and right. uh, Qui-Gon, where it's like this is a defining moment for Anakin's legacy. I mean, if, if he would have lived and Obi-Wan was not the one to train him, maybe the story would have been told different. And then it makes you go back and watch episode one and you're like, whoa like all the problems that people may have had with episode one this is truly uh, the intention of it even um even so many years later where this film has kind of aged and it's nice to see that people are more appreciative of it now mm -hmm. but back then when i first watched it i never once thought of that yeah yeah it, you you kind of need someone to spell it out a little bit because lucas uh, i think he was intentionally trying to let those things just sort of be in the scene without him telegraphing it too much. And I wonder if that hurts it a little bit because in the original trilogy, those themes are, are made clear. Like Yoda says, you know, why Luke fails and, you know, like the Luke at the end says, you know, nope, I'm throwing away my weapon. Like there's these obvious things that tell you where the characters are at and what's been leading them to these moments. But at the beginning of the story, it's not as clear there. People have choices. Things can go in many directions. And so it's a much more ambiguous situation. Um, so it is nice to have someone like Filoni navigate you through it and say like, no, pick up on this line. Like look where Qui-Gon is uh, butting heads with Obi-Wan and the council because he has a romantic idea of the Jedi and wants them to hold to a higher standard and be, you know, truer to the light side of the force than, you know, the, the bureaucratic political stupidity that everyone is so quick to get involved in. And even look at Obi-Wan and how he doesn't have a respect for life. Like someone like Jar Jar, he doesn't see the value in him. Mm -hmm. And Qui-Gon's always telling him, be mindful of the living force. Like, that stuff is there and it just it, it it went over my head in a lot of ways too like when i was younger and watching the movies i'm taking them more for their their whiz bang qualities than 
you know, some of these, these subtle messages and themes that Lucas was trying to throw into them. So there's a lot there to be mined. And Filoni is the guy that kind of, he, he's the, the torch bear at this point. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's real. It really is reassuring. That's my bottom line on Filoni is I'm really glad that he's in the mix over at Lucasfilm. Cause I feel like they need people that, um, can offer what Lucas offered in many ways, which is just a, a deep thinking on, uh, really the almost religious context mm-hmm. of star Wars that goes, that, that blows right past a lot of people. So yeah. you need them. And the first episode transitions very well into Deborah Chow's backstory and her experience mm-hmm. with Star Wars by her final comment on Filoni saying he knows what's right and wrong for Star Wars. <laughs> and I think that yes. that really puts these thoughts back into the forefront of our minds that, yeah, Disney's going somewhere with Filoni, Lucasfilm. This is this is the future. This is going to be the person that uh, that the fans had wanted for Star Wars and it really was inspiring to just see that and then to see the nuggets that they threw into this Disney gallery of what was to come because this was before Deborah Chow's announcement that she was going to exclusively write and direct yes. Obi-Wan. But it's clear that the people building gallery knew that this announcement was coming, or at least it's a pretty big coincidence if they <laughs> didn't because some of the stuff that they focused on, I mean, the very first comment is, you love action, and that's why we chose you for this. And um, I mean, the stuff that Deborah Chow captured between just the action, uh, and then also her capturing of the overall Star Wars legacy, and her capturing the cast do all this action was really reassuring to me. It's like, yep, that's who we need for Obi Wan. Yeah, it seems like this first season of Mandalorian, in many ways, was an opportunity for Lucasfilm to start building out their bench and basically auditioning talent that they could then spin off into other productions. And, you know, we're seeing that bear fruit. Now, the other thing about this gallery show is my basic takeaway of the whole thing is I feel like this is a little bit of rehabilitation for Lucasfilm. Like, I think what they're trying to do is, is speak to the fans and say, look, like there's good things happening, even though the fan base is divided in so many ways. And a lot of stuff is getting, mixed reactions because the fan base spans 40 years now, right? Like you can't please everyone. Um, I think what they're saying is like, we really love this property and we're bringing in the best people we can get and telling the best stories we can figure out how to make. And we've got our brain trust. So good things are going to be coming down the pipe. Like this basically says, look, we're, we're, we're building a vocabulary for how to do TV and we're bringing in the talent. We're just, we're, we're building up the infrastructure to be able to do wonderful things with star Wars, especially through Disney plus. Uh, so as, as a pitch for that, it's super effective because it had me sold. Like you do really feel the passion that everyone has in the competence. Like in the case of Deborah Chow, uh, you really get a sense that everyone else that was watching what she was doing during her episodes was saying, Oh, you know what? <laughs> she gets it. She's, you know, she's really knocking this out of the park. And so that bodes well for what she could do with her own star Wars series down the road. And one thing that got me super excited because, uh, and I don't know if this was necessarily intentional or how much action we are going to get from Obi-Wan, but one of the things that she said where she makes a comment of, I really like killing stormtroopers, <laughs> sure. made me like, okay, I think this Obi-Wan series is going to be filled with maybe not necessarily killing a bunch of stormtroopers, but I think Obi-Wan's going to be slicing uh, people, droids, <laughs> creatures down with his saber in this series. And another thing is they talked about her preparation 
and how she thinks every aspect from the overall, like what is Star Wars trying to tell through this story? How can I get this done in 30 minutes? And Mm -hmm. she comes in so prepared, which is like, okay, you know what? If you have to keep delaying Obi-Wan to get all this stuff locked in and locked down, I'm okay with that because I really trust her from the episodes we saw her direct in Mandalorian season one. And then of course, hearing her talk about her process and her procedures on how she goes about and approaches this is super cool and really speaks to the overall, once again, the personality that all these cast and crew bring to this story and then kind of the diversity as well. I mean, we have so, so much diversity in the first season of Mandalorian that it's really promising to see where star Wars is going throughout this whole thing. Absolutely. Yeah. When, when we were covering her first episode, the one where they have basically the showdown at the okay corral, you know, when Mando's trying to escape with the baby, um, I said in that episode, and it, it wasn't really, I think specifically, uh, a comment on Deborah Chow, just in what I was observing in the episode, cause we didn't really know much about her at that time. But I think I said, like, watch how these action set pieces are staged and how clear the narrative is of what's going on. And this, the understanding you have of the space because of how they frame the shot so that you get positional establishment of all the key players that you're going to see interact in this fight. So you, you understand the space, you understand what's going on in each corner of the space. So as you're cutting back and forth, you're never getting confused. It's not like watching a Transformers movie where it's just this like, uh, close up mess of, of, of visual motion blur you know like you can't really track what's going on and and it's just uh it's it's like sensory overload the way that she was approaching the staging of those uh set pieces was so much more competent and subtle and uh mature in a way like just in in her ability to tell story with it and not just cheat the closer you get in a fight sequence so that you don't really see as much of what's going on uh, the easier it is because you can get away with a lot of uh, things that just don't show up when you pull back and you get a more perspective on on the scene. And a lot of directors, that's their go to is let's just get up close and we'll just give people a lot of motion and we'll hope that their their imagination fills in the gaps of what's actually going on. But no, she just she had a very clear understanding of how to execute that in a way that just felt so much more satisfying to watch. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, that's my final word on Deborah Chow is that uh, she's very competent, particularly in those action scenes. But I think that she'll adapt her process to whatever kind of material. I don't know if Obi-Wan's going to be as action packed as what we saw in The Mandalorian, but I don't doubt for a second that she's got the eye to find the right tone and pace and the right way of establishing scenes, no matter what the subject matter. She just really, really is good at what she does. And then in the cast episode, they're talking about uh, her process on how to um, elicit an emotional response or to portray emotion through someone that's always wearing a mask. And I'd never Mm -hmm. really thought about that, but it's so true the way that she takes the shot or the close up of Mando's helmet where it's like, oh, you can tell he's nervous right now, but you can't see his face like you, you can't see anything. But just the way that it's shot, the way that, of course, Pascal uses all his different mannerisms that he has available to him to really show this. And then also uh, Bryce Dallas Howard is talking about like, okay, I'm going to capture all the small movements in Mando. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to make sure that everything is a little more dramatic. Like that's why he's, he turns his head a little bit more uh, than someone normally would just to kind of capture that. And then the way he pulls out his blaster and it's really interesting having someone like Bryce Dallas Howard, who of course is an actor first, 
capturing a very dialogue centric episode in the village episode where I think that that was the right choice. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. let's bring in an actor first to really capture this because this is the most dialogue heavy episode that we're going to have. And just seeing that and seeing this in a round table and hearing their thought process going into it was something that was super cool. And that I personally didn't really think about until the gallery. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's interesting that they were struggling with it and they realized that the, the trick really is, make sure that nothing else is moving in the scene, like lock down the camera and make sure that there's nothing to distract so that whatever subtle thing uh, the Mandalorian is doing, that's going to pull your focus and you're going to pick up on that because they don't have a lot to work with. They have to really live in the subtlety of his motion. Um, Yeah. And so you, you need good directors or people that are just willing to try things out and, and have an eye for when it's connecting and when it's working and, and be able to really focus in on, on those techniques. So yeah, another credit to the show as it builds out that vocabulary of how to do Star Wars uh, and really find performances and elevate uh, the material. Uh, it's just really reassuring to watch them all really on the top of their game, uh, delivering good material from this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And whenever you look deeper into Bryce Dallas Howard, it's it's something that you don't really think about a lot in terms of how the people got here. I mean, of course we know that she is the daughter of an outstanding director and writer, and of course took part in Jurassic park. Uh, But just hearing her experience where she's sitting at this table, falling asleep as a kid, (laughs) because the conversation is not interesting to some five-year-old, but it's with people like George Lucas and her, and she's just laying on her dad's chest was something that when you think about it, you're like, wow, this is the legacy of Star Wars. I mean, you have these two guys talking about something this impactful that they never who knows what they were thinking would have happened 30, 40 years later <laughs> down the road. And so that's just really cool to see someone who grew up with it and is now taking such a huge role in creating content for it. Yeah. When they announced her as one of the directors there, the cynical part of me was like, well, Ron Howard just did solo as a favor to Kathy mm-hmm. Kennedy. I wonder if maybe he called in a favor because he knows that, you know, she's looking to, to break into this side of the industry. So I questioned, you know, what she was going to be able to bring. I don't question it anymore. And, and what you just painted there, like that little anecdote that she told, you got to remember that she has been learning at the feet of masters her whole life. And just through osmosis, she's picking up so much of of what you know a good dire- how a good director approaches a project and uh yeah sometimes there's a there's a shorthand that you get when you have family that you know that's always the dinner table conversation or she's on set and she's just seeing this world you're going to pick up some craft from that and obviously you know she delivered on her episode so I'll just, you know, shut my mouth with <laughs> with those kind of cynical notions that maybe she wasn't in the same league as everyone else. She obviously brought a lot to the table and it is kind of cool that yeah, just her experience growing up would have helped inform how she approaches her directing. And kind of going back to this overall theme where the gallery goes out of its way at many points and maybe it wasn't necessarily purposeful, maybe this is just pure response and, and a genuine response from the cast directors, uh, Favreau himself, but there was always a tidbit in these first three episodes where someone expressed their love for Star Wars. And this Mm -hmm. goes to Pedro Pascal, where he's talking about 
that's the most important thing when they're when he's talking about his approach to being this kind of man with no name and being this guy who's behind a helmet and he's just like yeah the most important aspect of a project like this is to love it to love mm-hmm. star wars and i feel like every single person from taika deborah rick uh, bryce and all the cast they all genuinely loved what they were doing and i mm-hmm. think that you can see that in the final product yeah it's nice that they gave them all a chance to kind of reminisce about their first exposure to star wars and what it means to them and kind of what their age was when they were you know first got uh kind of enamored with it and you you need that you can't just have someone come in cold without any sense of reverence for the property so it is nice that they kind of all were able to express their bonafide in that way um yeah so that again it's it's all reassuring the the running theme of these gallery shows like i already said is making sure that everyone understands that there's a lot of love and passion going into these projects and that this isn't sort of callous, cynical, just Hollywood churning out nostalgic content to capitalize on IP. Like it, that, that isn't how these people who are heading up these projects, honestly, you know, view their role and view star Wars, that they're uh, star Wars is bigger than that for them. And uh, I think that's something that fans need to be reminded of. Cause when you, you don't hear it directly from the horse's mouth and you're just, you're getting all of your information just filtered through internet pundits or, you know, articles that are maybe drawing conclusions they don't need to make. It's easy for you to get this kind of warped view that everyone who works in film and television, that it's all about the bottom line. And it's, you know, this callous, like cigar smoking executive making decisions purely based on, you know, what's going to get the butts in the theater or whatever. Like there's a sense that, uh, that, that just trumps all. Mm -hmm. And you can tell in this, no, the people that have gotten on board with this project are there because they want to be there and they want to do something special. And of course they're working inside a studio system. So there is, there is some, uh, you know, economic realities to all that, but, uh, that doesn't mean that they're not all just really trying to do justice to something that they love. And, uh, I think that's worth remembering because yeah, as fans, we can sometimes assume the worst when things don't maybe come together the way that we would have thought. Well, I remember a year ago, there was a rumor going about the internet sphere, basically talking about how Pedro Pascal was Mm, so upset with the project, and he's actually not in the show as much as you think. He just did voiceover work for it. He didn't actually put on the suit. And that's addressed immediately with Rick Famuliwa's episode, whenever it's uh, discussing Mm -hmm. uh, his process, where it's like, no, that's clearly Pedro Pascal asking him where he needs to go, what he needs to do. And then also you get the whole hospital incident where he falls <laughs> and, you know, and gets a hit with the plank of wood on top of his head where he has to get stitches. But all this just kind of goes back to something that whenever I was thinking about this, I was like, well, the practical thing would be to for at least for Pedro Pascal and from just an overall process in filmmaking is Maybe you don't put an actor in the suit all the time and you have them do the voiceover, have a stunt double always in the suit so that they can do all the crazy stuff. But then I'm watching this. I was like, oh, you know what? They actually wanted a genuine performance from an actor in this Mandalorian suit. And of course, Pedro Pascal wants to be in the suit as much as possible. So I thought that that was kind of a nice little uh, I don't even think they were intending to address that rumor because I think Lucasfilm is above that and they don't really care about those type of rumors, but I thought it was very cool to see how often he actually was in the suit. Yeah, it's funny. Pedro Pascal, it doesn't sound like he can win when it comes to rumors either way, because we had heard these rumors about some sort of him just not being content with kind of what was happening with, with his role in the show. And initially the assumption was that because 
we knew that for the first few episodes, there was a scheduling conflict where they, they needed someone on set, but he was still involved in another project or something like that, where he couldn't do a lot of the in-person stuff. And so he did do more voiceover work after the fact. And there isn't a whole lot of him present in the first few episodes. We knew that coming into it. And so people assumed that that was the issue that Mm -hmm. he wanted to be there and they just really just wanted his voice or just wanted his name, you know, on attached to the show. Turns out, you know, there was nothing to that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once he got involved and kind of got up to speed with the production that, you know, he really was engaged and really, you know, was into the character and doing as much as he could. And that's not to say that they didn't have capable stunt people that we also learn about in gallery that were doing specific stuff when it comes to, you know, gunplay or comes to, you know, physicality that Pedro Pascal just can't offer. You know, he just doesn't right. know jujitsu. So they got to have someone that can fight, you know, when, when it calls for it. So, you know, there was a lot of assumptions made and a lot of rumors that went around and for the most part, they were baseless and just really, uh, they hung on the idea that people were learning that he wasn't heavily on set at the beginning. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is those same rumors from like over a year ago have now morphed into the opposite thing where the rumors that are going around now are like, he wanted to be more involved and uh, he wanted to show his face and they wouldn't let him sh- take off his helmet. And so there was some sort of discontent over that. And, you know, I don't know if, you know, there very well could be a kernel of truth to that, but I mean, these are professionals and, you know, if someone has a creative difference, they, you know, they sit down, they hash it out, they work it out. It doesn't have to, you know, they don't have to air their dirty laundry, but what you get from gallery, if, if there was intentional um, damage control being done or not, what you get is the sense that everyone still wants the show to be great. And, uh, like any production, we don't need to hang on every time someone has a bad day and, you know, maybe, you know, smarts off about them, you know, not feeling like their characters getting their due or whatever. That's, that's just showbiz. <laughs> and so, uh, we don't, you know, spend a lot of time uh, digging deep on, on that kind of stuff, especially when it's unconfirmed or unsubstantiated rumors. But yeah, I don't know. And until there was something concrete, I wouldn't read into any of that other than to say from what we're presented in this show, it shows that there's a lot of love for the project. And I certainly hope that that continued to carry through season two, because I don't think that there's much new discontent. I think this is something that was quashed like a year ago and that people are just bringing it back up because Mando's in the news again. So why not try and figure out a fresh angle on an old story? But anyways, that's enough on that. (laughs) Well, one of the things you said, you talked about kind of the combat experience here. And then that brings Mm -hmm. up an aspect of Gina Carano's character, Cara Dune, who right. brought that genuine MMA experience to her role. And I knew that's why they cast her. Like I knew that they cast her because of her MMA background, but what was revealed in the cast episode was that they actually wrote this part with her in mind. Right. And I thought, wow, that is that one. It's a gutsy move because before this, Gina had had about two projects. She was in Deadpool where she said a total of two lines and she <laughs> right. was clearly there just to be the action role. And then she was in Haywire, which in my opinion, I didn't love the film. I didn't think there was a lot of good acting behind it. And so I was like, okay, they're hiring this MMA fighter to bring it. But the fact that they wrote it for her and then she comes in and she absolutely kills it. Like she crushes mm. the acting aspect of it. And of course the fighting aspect. And I thought that once again, this is kind of what Star Wars is about. Like you have these different, um, you bring in these different people and you have these different things in mind whenever you're approaching it. And I, I had no idea. And so that was a cool reveal for me. 
yeah, they talk a little bit about their process and what they were looking for for that character and how they really kind of designed it around her because they were already sold on her based on just who she'd been involved with and who'd already plucked her out of the pack and said, oh, this is the person that kind of can bring something special to these sorts of roles. And uh, yeah, it's good casting because you watch the show and a lot of times if you have a strong female character, like not just like an assertive female character, but I mean a, a female character where they're supposed to be like a physical badass. Like they're, they're one of the superheroes. A lot of times it's easy to make them an unrelatable character. Yep. Like they're a misfit for being female plus a brute, you know? And so they, they're not someone that is often a fan favorite or someone that uh, people relate to or look up to, or, you know, want to emulate. That's not the action figure that you reach for. But in Cara Dune's case, that casting that what they worked into the show with her character you instantly like the character from the second she's on screen you you're won over by just how good natured she is but she's also you know confident and strong and willing to go toe to toe and and you know get into uh you know fisticuffs uh so she's got like an edge but it's not something that makes her unrelatable or a character that you just don't you don't want to see win. Um, she, she's kind of like a, a sweetheart that can also <laughs> kick butt and that's a hard line to walk. So it is interesting that they found someone that can bring charm and presence and likability and also still be, you know, part of the, the brute squad. Um, that's, that's tough. And I, I respect that they found her and, and I'm glad that, uh, she didn't have to stretch her personality too far to fit the character because they, they were willing to meet her halfway and they were really crafting the character around her. She just got to come in and be herself Mm -hmm. and that's who you fall in love with. And that's easier for her to play. Uh, and so it works for everyone. It, 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 yeah, everyone just kind of met each other on their level and the results were fantastic. And another cool nugget was that whenever they pitched this idea to Pedro Pascal to ask him to be the Mandalorian, the concept art that they showed him already had someone painted yeah. in her likeness and so he's basically looking at jada carano before he's even cast as a mandalorian mm-hmm. and that's one of those things to where it shows how careful this team was in crafting this whole project where it's like they had what they wanted in mind before they had even started day one and i mean sometimes you because she didn't even uh become president until the second or third episode in right. the mandalorian so that's something to where they could have started production without having her sealed down. They could have started and picked anyone off the street that has an MMA background to do this. But the fact that they went into it that carefully, where it was like, this is our first option and we may have other options, but let's try to get option A before yep. we do anything else. Yep. Sometimes option A is the right option. <laughs> uh, it worked out nicely. She's a fun character. And I think one of the things that I can't remember if who it was that said it, it might've been, Favreau I can't remember who said it but someone was talking about her as a character and they said she's the action figure that I would have wanted you know to to play with and I I think that really kind of says a lot that just as a character the likability and what she creates as far as fostering imagination in like a kid to you know you want to you want to play with strong characters like that's why Han Solo will outsell Hondo Baba, you know, a thousand times over. Um, like you, you, you want uh, someone that's like dashing and leading, and it's just funny that she became that character in many ways in 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 this show. She is the the likable face in in some respects, and I can see a lot of people gravitating towards her as a character. 
Absolutely. And something that scares me a bit, and it's not because I'm concerned about the, uh, the show being bad, but <laughs> it's it's a line whenever they're talking with uh, Deborah Chow and her uh, her process and the idea of having Quill bring back IG-11 just right. to have those two characters be killed off to kind of show the importance of that uh, death in storytelling. And Favreau kind of goes deep in that. And he's like, <laughs> if you don't kill off characters, nothing actually matters. And so yep. now I'm going into season two thinking, oh, who's going to die? Like this feels like classic Game of Thrones where you're going into the next season sure. and like someone else is going to die. And I think it's going to be devastating. It could be. It was a funny, just off the cuff remark that he was making. He's like, yep, but you got to do it, right? Like when they're talking about sometimes making hard choices with, with the characters and killing your darling, so to speak. Uh, but he gets that good storytelling has to have stakes. If this is going to be true to the Western genre, the samurai genre, if, if this is going to be a little bit weightier than typical youth fair, there has to be some stakes and there has to be that ever present danger that things could turn on a dime and that's what keeps you on the edge of your seat. And that's what makes it a lot of fun. And I just love that there's people involved that get that. And they're not just going to bow to the idea that, well, this is a fan favorite. So they're off the table, you know, they're, they're sacrosanct. They can't be touched. They always have to win the day. If the story dictates that, that they have to kill one of their darlings, it's nice to know that they're brave enough to do that. And, you know, hopefully you don't get any kind of uh, high level interference from you know the the toy company that doesn't want to you know yeah. kill off a, a favorite toy or whatever like ho- hopefully there's there's no issues that way but it, it seems like the people involved in the project are like you said they're they're willing to have a little bit of fun uh, when it comes to uh mixing it up and and leaving you guessing on who might be you know on the chopping block and mm-hmm. i think that makes tv a lot more compelling and you have uh, Rick Famuyiwa, who, of course, is directing another episode in season two. Yep. And he's kind of talking about that action figure thing to where that's how yes. he always imagined playing out the next act in Star Wars by playing with these action figures. And so it and I think he leads off the season. I don't know if they release the the order of the episodes that they're going to be releasing. But I, I feel like it was announced that he's leading off season two with the first episode. And if that's the case, I'm expecting this to be another kind of large landscape a lot of stuff going on and of course the first act of mandalorian season two may be the establishing act where we are introduced to the next level of threat that mando goes through because of course we saw a lot of aspects of post action in that trailer uh so that has me super excited about just rick family was approach to it and then seeing these characters and even new characters where there's going to be some higher stakes in season two yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could build on that, but at this point, more questions than answers. Um, it is nice to know that the people that prove themselves on season one, that they've realized that, oh, you know what, we've got another episode that's perfect for their voice. Mm-hmm. So now it's not just a guessing game of, oh, there's a bunch of hot young directors out there. I think they might be a good fit for a Mandalorian episode. Now we're coming in with the confidence of knowing that they can deliver and mm-hmm. knowing, you know, what their take is. And, uh, you know, in his case, what he can do with like, a claustrophobic sort of like action set piece. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of things that they saw him perform really well in season one. So if there, if it, if there's a call for that kind of a, an episode, they know who their guy is. So um, we can try and extrapolate from there, but what's the point? You know, we've got very little to go on from the trailer and I've been trying to keep myself as spoiler free as possible. So I'm just going to say, I'm just going to wait with bated breath and I am confident that I'm going to be impressed. Mm -hmm. Going to the cast again and looking mm. at 
just the overall performance. There was something else that really was interesting, and this is where Pascal is using his acting chops, where he's kind of improvising the different takes so that whenever he gets into the recording booth, because we always knew that Mm. it was going to be voiceover, the voice was going to be added after those things, but it was really interesting to see him kind of take that approach and that Filoni and Favreau were so open to that idea of, okay, let's let him improv this and then uh, we'll allow him, this actor that we brought in to play the Mandalorian, help us rewrite some of the lines. Uh, And it goes back to that overall legacy of Star Wars and creating something that is truly special because like it was said a number of times throughout the the first three episodes in gallery, this is the first live action Star Wars show and there are more stakes for the people involved in it than, than when, what we would think. Yeah. Having trust in your actors and letting them bring a bit of their own creative genius into the recording booth. That's nothing new, right? Like that's an area where, You've got the time and it's not so pricey for you to be in the ADR booth that you can't play around with the dialogue a little bit and see if there's something that's truer to the character, you know, what have you. So, um, you know, that's not unique to the Mandalorian, but again, it speaks to how invested people are because if Pedro Pascal was kind of the way he was painted originally with, oh, you know what? He's just coming in after the fact to do some ADR and it's like, it's barely like it's even him being the Mandalorian, you know, people were quick to kind of write that off. But if he didn't care about the character, he wouldn't come into the booth in the zone thinking Mm -hmm. what's right for the character and what's the best that I can present and where that doesn't line up with what's on the page. I have the fortitude to to say to Filoni and Fabric, can we try it a couple different ways? Because I I really want to make this special. If he didn't care about the role and wasn't doing his best work, that wouldn't happen. And just the handful of clips that they showed. You, you can see he's he's got his whole body in it. He's not phoning it in. Mm-hmm. Sure, he's in an ADR booth, but you, he's still like contorted and he's like acting out the movements. He's really trying to get the performance there. And he's holding a pillow to <laughs> emulate the like yes. I'm holding this baby, protecting right, it. Right. Uh, it was really cool to see that uh, and really interesting because I I had just done over this COVID thing, my first real voiceover work. And that was one mm-hmm. of the things that I was inspired by because I had just watched that episode of uh, of Disney Gallery. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to sit down in my recording area. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to act out this. And like I'm on a Zoom call with like a director and writer. Um, and it really shows the dedication that Pedro Pascal had yep. where he's like, you know what? No, I'm not going to sit down. I'm going to act. I don't care that there's 20 people looking at me weird because I'm not just reading lines off of the paper, but it's like, oh, and can I get a trash can so I can speak into? Can I get a (laughs) pillow that I can hold to kind of protect people from uh, or protect the child from these different people? And so it was really cool to see that and inspiring for me personally, because it, it really was something that you don't see a lot. I mean, you don't see a lot of actors in the recording booth unless it's a huge project and you have Tom Hanks doing the last performance of Woody or what have you. But this was something that was really cool to see them bring all these different things that Lucasfilm is quite good at. I mean, we have the Clone Wars that was amazing. Right. And you're bringing in all these different aspects from the films, from the animation, and bringing it into this one project that I think is now Star Wars fans' baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well put. I don't have a whole lot to build on that, but it was fun to see again, like 
you know, we could say it a million times, but it does seem like everyone had a lot of passion for it and they were bringing their all to it. And if you got to turn your ADR booth into a little bit of a, a Foley session to just really make sure that your actor has everything that he can draw on to give a great performance. If you love the project, you're going to go that extra mile. And uh, it was nice to see. I wanted to have my closing remarks on the first three episodes, focusing on Taika Waititi. After seeing that first episode of Gallery and seeing him kind of just be the the goofball on set, like sure. you have all these different, uh, you know, super serious people on Star Wars, and then you have him like in between takes, he's dancing around with the different <laughs> actors, he's goofing off, he's making fun of them, he's saying that he really doesn't like working with them and how they're so unprofessional. When uh, it's kind of showing these clips, but my final remark on Taika is I hope whatever project they have for him, because we know that something is coming from Taika Waititi. I hope that they allow him to bring his personality into it because mm-hmm. we saw that it works with Thor Ragnarok when, and, and it's not going to be this Star Wars project. I'm not necessarily advocating for it to be as silly as Thor <laughs> Ragnarok, sure. but it showed that you can have some flexibility there that you can bring in something like that into a more serious, uh, sure. serious project and that it still works. Cause let's not forget the very next movie after Ragnarok was infinity war, which mm-hmm. is possibly one of the darker movies, sure. uh, in, in that, in that genre. So I hope that they allow Taika to be, uh, to bring his personality and to bring the aspects of his filmmaking into whatever project that they're doing with him. Yeah. So in his case, even though he has um, a performance and a comedic background himself, which obviously, you know, is a skill set that he can draw on when he needs to, I think what's really telling about his episodes is that they don't come off obviously cornier. Mm-hmm than any of the other episodes. So even though he has that skill set, it's not like he's a one trick pony or he feels like he has to put his signature style on everything. He's got enough of an eye and enough of an understanding of what his episode should be that he's willing to pepper that in where appropriate, but also walk the line of making sure this fits with the greater show. And so, I mean, that while you can see that he is a bit of a cut up and, and uh, he's obviously someone that's very well liked around the production because of, you know, the, the levity that he brings to everything. It doesn't mean that that ever becomes uh, a burden or a distraction or in any way uh, compromises the work that he's doing. He's obviously a very serious director that also just happens to be very funny. Now, in the case of Thor Ragnarok, I think Marvel said, you know what? go with your strengths on this one, like make this one a little bit more funny because we've rehabilitated Thor into a funnier character and the space side of the Marvel universe is our more comedic side Mm -hmm. of the Marvel universe. You know, like we've got the winter soldier here on earth. That's a little more serious or, you know, uh, you know, we've got that side of, of the Marvel universe, but in space you get guardians of the galaxy and you get Mm -hmm. things that are little, little cornier. So by all means, let's draw on that. So I think he was cut loose to be able to indulge, you know, some of his funnier qualities and it worked great in that project, but he didn't go overboard with anything here. And I think that's important to note because a good director is going to rein themselves in and not let their project just be an indulgence of whatever personally speaks to them. What, what I think about when I think of Taika Waititi is, man, if they had had access to him when they were doing prep for solo, mm-hmm. I wonder if maybe he would have been the guy because they were obviously looking for something sort of like guardians of the galaxy where 
they were going to let Star Wars be a little bit funnier because this is a, a less high stake story and they wanted the charm of, of Han Solo to marry with something that, you know, had a bit more of a, a comedic quality to it. So that's why, you know, they, they brought in the guys from cloudy with a chance of meatballs uh, to do it. But apparently maybe their take on it was a little more indulgent and they were going a little bit too far in the whole improv comedy side of it. Whereas Taika Waititi could have brought humor to it, but also brought the restraint necessary to make sure it was still a star Wars movie. And I just wonder, if they'd had a do-over, if they would have said, yeah, Taika, go, that's yeah. your project right there. We'll never know. I mean, Solo turned out okay for what it was, but um, it makes me hopeful that whatever projects they're attaching them to moving forward, uh, that restraint, but also that creative comedic quality is really going to create something that's going to be a fun ride. And we don't know necessarily what it what it is that he's going to be working on. Whenever it was announced, it was he's working on a film that could have changed at this point uh, with everything mm-hmm. going on from COVID to uh, Disney and Lucasfilm saying maybe we need to camp out on the television sphere a little bit longer. Yeah. I mean, maybe it is or they add him on to the extension of the solo universe because there have been a lot of rumors mm. about this is going to, this is going to happen. And there's some like, kind of like, yes, from these, from these guys, like, yeah, we're, we're doing something. We're, we're not going to say it's solo too, but we're doing something within, within this aspect of right. star Wars. And so maybe that's what they do. Maybe they bring him in for something like that and say, you know what, Taika, this is your area. Han Solo has always been kind of this sarcastic, um, not necessarily funny character, but kind of this more, I'm going to bring some light into, yeah, into there's the There's a swagger. There's a charm. There is a comedic quality to it. Yeah. You know what? Taika and Donald Glover, that could be a match made in heaven mm-hmm. right there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I would be hopeful. We can consider the first solo movie. Okay. It's a bit of a bumpy start, mm-hmm. but they established good characters, good casting. And we know that all those guys are contracted for multiple films. So, you know, there, there's something there that you put the right director in place and give it enough time to bake Lucasfilm, please <laughs> just give it enough time to bake. Uh, who knows what they could turn out if, if it translates into a series, but in that time frame with those characters, that was something that's been bandied about a little bit that maybe they're going to translate it into a, like a six episode sort of a one-off series. I don't know. I don't know what they've got him involved in, but I think he's got a great voice. And I think that Lucasfilm has a lot of great talent on contract Mm -hmm. that they certainly could revisit that particular story thread if they were so inclined. I think the results could be maybe a lot better than people would expect because Solo was a bit of a mixed bag. Absolutely. And one of the things that I want to close out with Taika on is Mm. the first thing is him bringing in unused props rejected props from (laughs) lord of the rings and what we do in the shadows and i wanted to bring that up because whatever he does i hope he brings stuff in from unused or rejected material from the star wars saga because we know that lucasfilm is notorious for saving everything in massive storage units so i hope that they allow him to kind of walk through this and be like oh i'm going to use this piece over here i'm going to use this for this and uh, i hope they allow him to do that and then the, my last closing remark, if anyone still has doubts on Taika, I want to draw your attention to Favreau's quote where he says that he that Taika does an amazing job at finding ways to make comedy within the action, but not yes. making fun of the action. Yeah, yeah, that was a good quote because that that's the difference, right? When you're winking at your own show, it pulls the audience out and it makes them say, oh, this is trivial. They don't really care if I'm invested in it. 
So why would I be? I'm just going to take this as bubblegum throwaway material. But when you maintain that barrier where you are never commenting on your own show, you are presenting your material as this is reality for the next 40 minutes. This is your reality. Mm -hmm. You have to take it super serious. And when humor comes up, it's because that humor is earned. It's because the scene uh, gave birth to that humor. It's not because we're just trying to throw in some cheap gag because we've got nothing better to show you. Uh, and it, it does take, again, that restraint. And it takes responsible directors that really know their craft to walk that line. And the fact that Favreau recognized that about Taika Waititi, I think, is very important. And I think that's why he'll continue to be an asset for future Star Wars productions. Yeah, and just being able to bring on someone like Sadekis to make fun of the stormtroopers, <laughs> sure. their aim, and you know, making right. fun of the—I mean, that's as slapsticky as that episode got. And this is the same episode where it's like, you know, it's two minutes after they had just killed Quill, right. and they have that's Baby true. Yoda, and they're beating Baby Yoda in the bag, and it's like it goes from a very somber note to start off the episode that, like, it confirms, yep, Quill's yep. dead. And now right. these stormtroopers have the child and they're taking the child back to uh, back to the, the remnants of the Empire to do tests and do what have you finding midichlorians, whatever it is they're actually trying to do. And then back to kind of a, a serious note again where it's like, mm. no, nope, we're back in the action. Mando's yep. pursuing them. Uh, and then kind of two minutes after IG-11 dies, you have another slapstick. Hey, do the magic hand thing. Right. And it doesn't feel unnatural. It doesn't, it doesn't remove you from it. It gives you that kind of chuckle. But then you're right back in it because then you have Moff Gideon with the TIE Fighter coming back around to, to blast him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a tough line to walk. It's interesting that you bring up, uh, you know, Sadekis as the stormtrooper there at the beginning. Again, using humor mm -hmm. when it, it's going to serve the scene and serve the story. This is a good example of that because you need to know that those stormtroopers are irredeemable. They are just worthless creatures <laughs> that you're about to see curb stomped and you don't want to necessarily feel uh like you're being needlessly brutal to these stormtroopers when ig 11 comes and and uh you know <laughs> does what he does um so you need to loathe them mm -hmm. and so using the humor to make them irredeemable is in a way a masterstroke and the fact that that all played out so nicely there was the homage to stormtroopers can't shoot uh you know at the same time that they're just being terrible and it's just tongue-in-cheek enough that it, it really contrasts with the the sharp turn that it takes when ig11 just opens up on them and uh the humor is a critical ingredient in making that scene as potent as it is so yeah again just competent people working on this show and uh you know the emmys recognize that you know it's not just us fanning out over it uh we can officially say that uh yeah people are recognizing that something good is happening yeah. on this production and there's so much that we didn't get to go through because these episodes even though they <laughs> sure. were 30 minutes long there was so much packed into them so we didn't get into like i ilm's contributions to things like jurassic park terminator right. uh the abyss even though if you didn't know that, you should know that and go back and watch some of the things that that ILM has contributed to in the past. And it makes you super excited for season two of The Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. um, and that's my closing thought on the whole thing is like just watching Disney Gallery makes me hyped up. This is like the sure. hype video before you run out of the tunnel and, <laughs> yep. and play the game. Um, so I'm hyped for that. And John, I'm wondering after taking these episodes in, wrap up your thoughts on these three episodes. Well. This was uh, a perfect commercial for the hardcore nerds. 
you know, like you said, you know, it got you jazz for Mandalorian season two. That's its purpose. I grew up in the wake of peak Lucas peak Spielberg, right? Like I came of age in the era of return of the Jedi Jurassic park, you know, Goonies was in there somewhere. Like it was just like, it, it was a, just a, a great era for kids entertainment. And so inevitably there was a long period of time where I had decided that I'm going to be a director in the vein of Lucas and Spielberg when I grew up. So I bought Starlog magazines. I bought Fangoria. I bought the technical guides to uh, all of the spacecraft in Star Wars. I, you know, like I steeped myself in the production stuff. Like I, I knew the story of you know, how Star Wars came to be and all the production woes that went along with it. And, you know, like I, I was a student of Lucas and Spielberg as so many kids in our generation was, you, you, you almost couldn't be, Mm -hmm. but I really, I really dug deep on, um, just the behind the scenes of these movies at the time. Yeah. So something like this, that comes along almost like a DVD commentary or just something that lets you peek in on that world and connect with the passion of the people involved. That's what sells me because that really speaks to my my childhood and my heart. And like you said, it, it's a great way to get nerds like us excited about the next season. And uh, I hope that people tune in because, yeah, it's a it really is a great way to build appreciation for what you're seeing on screen. And it makes the show that much richer. Yeah. And I would not be shocked if they use some sort of homage to Modesto you like they were <laughs> going to do allegedly with the will of the fates. Um, right. I, I mean, I, I feel like something like that is coming in the uh, in season two. There's going to be more homages to George Lucas and kind of that backstory, even if it's in just the Disney gallery, the Mandalorian part two, whatever it is that they're doing. We can tell <laughs> that that this project was uh, it was really, a, you know, a love project, a love letter to Lucas himself. Like, hey, we're going to take all these great things that you have done in right. Star Wars and prep for us and we're going to expand on it. We're going to build something that would, of course, make George Lucas proud. Yeah, I mean, that's that's all I got for for these three episodes. I'm excited for season two. We're just a couple weeks away. I mean, we're 20 days away from the launching of season two of The Mandalorian. So while people wait, John, where can they find you? Well, uh, for anyone that's in the know about SNL, uh, they premiered their 46th season last week. They are back in their studio despite you know, COVID craziness. Um, they're trying to put on a live show as, as true to form as they can with all things considered. And so it's obviously creating a lot to talk about. And I talk about it on my other podcast, SNL after party podcast, which can be found in all your podcast apps, but now can also be found on YouTube. We've retooled. And so now we're a video first uh, production. And so if anyone wants to check out uh, our commentary on SNL, they can just search for SNL after party, wherever better podcasts or videos can be found. And of course you can keep up with this show throughout the week on Twitter at star Wars TV talk. And by emailing us at hello at star Wars TV talk.com. You can find the rest of our episodes online at star Wars TV talk.com. And by searching for star Wars TV talk, wherever you get your podcast and please slam that subscribe button and give us a five-star review. You can find more TV Talk podcasts at tvtalk.fm. Thank you so much for listening, and may the Force be with you always.